Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and I am thrilled to finally announce that we are going to talk about William Shakespeare on this podcast. Our guest today is Farrah Cream Cooper, a professor of Shakespeare studies at King's College London and the co-director of education at Shakespeare's Globe. Her book is The Great White Bard, How to Love Shakespeare While Talking About Race. And the book analyzes Shakespeare's plays through the lens of race by plumbing his work for a deeper, more complex understanding in modern times. As you all know, I love Shakespeare and I am thrilled to finally give his work some serious consideration on the podcast. Today, we talk about why Farrah wanted to dedicate her life's work to Shakespeare, her favorite and least favorite of his plays, and which one she would assign to high school students. Farah will return on December 27th for the Stacks Book Club episode, where we will discuss Romeo and Juliet, which I'm sure you know is arguably one of Shakespeare's most well-known and beloved plays. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you love this show and you want inside access to it, join The Stacks Pack by going to patreon.com slash the stacks. If you join now, in addition to bonus episodes, access to our Discord, and our monthly book club meetups, you'll also get our reading tracker and the ability to vote in our literary awards, The Stackies. Plus, by joining the Stacks Pack, you get the all-important perk of knowing that you are supporting me, an independent creator, make a nice little niche show about books. Shout out to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Mark X, Alexis Johnson, Malik Gerdes, Khadija Nadoye, and Claire Nutchturn. Thank you all so much for joining the Stacks Pack, and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. I could not do it without you. And now it is time for my conversation with Farah Kareem Cooper. All right, everybody. The way that I am excited for this interview is beyond, I think, the anything I could articulate. But many of you know I am a lover of Shakespeare. And we are finally going to talk about William Shakespeare on the podcast. I am joined today by Farah Kareem Cooper, who wrote the book, The Great White Bard, How to Love Shakespeare While Talking About Race. Farah, welcome to the Stacks. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm 
you have no idea how excited I am. I like almost cried talking about it yesterday with people in the stacks pack. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you about my background in a second, but for our listeners, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you come from, what you're into, give us like a little bio, but it doesn't have to be like your professional bio. It can be like a little more about Farah. <laughs> okay. Well, um, so I'm from, um, I'm from a lot of places actually. So I was born in Pakistan. My family moved to England. And then when I was about seven, we moved to Texas. So I grew up in Texas wow. and I kind of really identify as sort of Texan. Um, but I moved or well, actually American, I'll just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, um, I moved to England in 1997, uh, to come here and do my, um, graduate studies. Um, and then I ended up meeting my husband here, my ex-husband, I should say. Um, and we had a daughter and she's amazing and she's studying acting, um, oh. right now she's 19. Um, and uh, I work at the Globe. Um, I'm the director of education there. Um, and I was kind of drawn to that job because when I first moved here as a grad student, it just literally was about to open. Mm. And I was so excited to think how, first of all, an American was responsible for building the Globe or the idea behind it, Sam Wanamaker. Um, and also just the idea that we could sort of act in the playhouse that Shakespeare would have written for um, was thrilling. And of course, I've been there for 19 years now. So cool. Yeah. Um, I am like your daughter. I was an actress, though I'm not anymore. Um, and that, that's how I really came to love Shakespeare was through the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, so I recently... Uh, I think 2018 through 2021, I went back and I finally read every single play. Oh, my God. Even King John? Even King John. (laughs) Constance, my girl. Uh, I actually used to do one of Constance's monologues as an audition in college. Oh, wow. That's Um, amazing. Yeah, I went back. I did them all in publication order, though I know that I just picked a list and did it that way. But I hadn't read them all. And I said, I love Shakespeare. So I said, I do it. But I I do love Shakespeare. And I, you know, am a black woman. And so I've contended with a lot of race in the text, but also around the shows. And so when I saw your book, I was like, "Uh oh, we're gonna have to finally do it on the show. Um, I think you're friends with Ayanna Thompson, right? Yeah, she's my best friend. We're okay. So maybe. she did a bonus episode with us right <gasps> oh, after did. I finished reading everything. And we talked a little bit about it. Um, so that was really a joyful thing. She's great. Yeah, and and then it turned amazing. out she was the dramaturg on the Macbeth that my friend was like assistant directing on Broadway with oh, Daniel yeah. Craig. So I yes. got to meet her in person at she, opening night, which was amazing. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. She took me to see that show. Yeah, I thought I thought they did a really good job with it. Anyways. Yeah. Um, anyways, all that to say is that I come by a love of Shakespeare from the theater and I truly, truly love the text. And I and so your book was exciting to me because I knew that you were gonna grapple with the race, but also that it came from a place of love and admiration, as it says in the in the subtitle. So yeah. I wanted to know, I guess way before you wrote this book, you talk about Romeo and Juliet as being sort of your gateway. Mm-hmm. How did you go from I like Shakespeare to being like, I want to be a Shakespeare scholar, because that's sort of a leap, right? Like everybody loves Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet, but not everybody dedicates their life to it. No, it's true. I mean, the rest of high school, like there was, because that was my freshman year in high school when I met that play and I met that 
that film. But the rest of high school, Shakespeare was taught in such an uninspiring way that I just never really got excited about Shakespeare again. Um, and I remember I was thinking, oh, when I graduate high school, I think I'll try to go to law school or I'll, I'll do pre-law or something like that. I wasn't mm. quite sure what I wanted to do. And then cliche, <laughs> I saw <laughs> I saw the movie because I was old enough now to have seen it in the cinema, A Dead Poet Society, mm. the year I was graduating high school. And I thought, ooh, that would be fun to teach English. Um, and it's not that I necessarily connected with uh, a group of privileged <laughs> white um, <laughs> schoolboys in the uh, East Coast. But I just thought it was really inspiring. And there was just so much literature in it. And I thought, oh, I'll major in English. That'll be fun. And I did. And then I met this amazing professor um, mm. who she, uh, I still see her at conferences now, which is amazing. But she taught a, a con- undergraduate Shakespeare course. And she walked in, I remember the first day she walked in, she had this like amazing hair and mm. she wore beautiful, like impeccable suits and her um, shoes and her bag always matched. And then she'd start talking about Shakespeare and I just like could listen to her forever because she was so interesting and she kind of brought out all the kind of juicy parts of Shakespeare. Um, and it was at that moment that I thought, actually, I kind of like to be a professor Uh, You know, I want to know everything there is to know about Shakespeare. And my shoes always match my bag. That's a really great, that's a great combo. That's the prerequisite. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. Um, Was there another play that sticks out to you, like, in those early days that really, like, grabbed you? Or or was there something about how she taught Shakespeare that, like, really sits with you? Because I just know so many people who hate Shakespeare and think it's boring. And I always... I have, a, I have a theory about that, but I'd love to hear what sticks out to you about that. I think she used to talk about Shakespeare as if she was in the room when he was writing the plays. And that's mm. what I really liked about it was that she had that kind of intimacy with the language. And and also she was a, like a raging feminist. And I saw stuff in Shakespeare at that time that I was like, I don't really right. think that... <laughs> I don't think I want to be a woman in that world. Um, but she always had a really interesting take on it. And it was As You Like It that I remember mm. her. I remember her As You Like It lecture. I remember she told us at the time that her thesis title was Sex, colon, As You Like It. I thought, <laughs> this is going to be an interesting <laughs> lecture. I love um, that. <laughs> yeah. So it, I guess that was a, an, it was a really interesting play. And I remember at the time, just kind of picking up on some of the racial language in it because mm-hmm. Phoebe's talked about uh, in in sort of racialized terms and they there's one point where it refers to her inky brows mm-hmm. uh, as if it's a bad thing and of mm-hmm. course I had these big thick black eyebrows in those days and I was like what's wrong with inky brows you know <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, I think it was probably her lecture on as you like it. I love that. Okay, so then you become a Shakespeare scholar, kind of fast forwarding a little bit. You work at the Globe. What is it about race and Shakespeare that is exciting to you? Because, of course, there are Shakespeare scholars, like you mentioned your professor who came to it from like this sort of feminist angle, or you could do like sort of a queer angle and like all Mm -hmm. the homoerotic references in Shakespeare. Or you could do, you know, there's people who just focus on the language or the Mm -hmm. time, Shakespeare and his time. So what was it for you about race, racism, racialization that was interesting, exciting, 
whatever. Yeah. Well, I mean, it really kind of sparked when I was doing my PhD research because I I wrote about cosmetics and beauty practices in Shakespeare's Mm. time and on the stage. And I remember to do that, I had to research what the beauty standard was in Elizabethan England. And I was reading all of this poetry, beauty treatises written in, in Italy that were translated into English. And the same image was coming um, uh, coming up over and over again. And that was pale white skin, mm-hmm. kind of glowing complexion, blonde hair, rosy cheeks. So this was this sort of ideal. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, oh my God, it's whiteness. Like white is right. what everybody wants to be. Um, and I, and I thought to myself, this is, this is about race. So I, and it wasn't that there was one text that was about race. It felt like it was a sort of ubiquitous idea. Like everybody was kind of racializing and, and, and elevating whiteness to a certain level. And so um, I talked to my professor about it and I had just read Kim Hall's book, Things of Darkness, Race mm. and Gender, uh, Economies of Race and Gender in Early Modern England. And it came out in 1995. This was 1997 when I was doing this research. And my PhD supervisor at the time, I had a second one later, was like, no, 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 this is a dead end. You don't want to pursue this. Uh, hmm. Race is anachronistic. <laughs> uh, nobody, Nobody's going to be interested in this. You can't go anywhere with this. Shakespeare's pre-race, right? So, of course, as a young graduate student, I got really um, put off by that and nervous. And I didn't want to do something that my PhD supervisor said would have been a bad idea. So I kind of... Um, I, I did talk about race in my PhD and in my book, which uh, on the same topic, but I didn't do enough with it that I would have wanted to. Um, so that's really when I kind of began to notice that race was a thing. Um, and Kim Hall's book came out at the same time. And then I just kind of went full on into kind of mainstream sort of white lens Shakespeare, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and of course, I did write a couple of essays on race and gender, but it wasn't really like my main focus. I was writing because I was at the Globe. I was writing about theater history and mm-hmm. material culture and special effects and the body and phenomenology and all these really interesting things. But there was something missing from all of my the conversations that I was having. Um, and then I joined the board of the SAA, which is the Shakespeare Association of America, in about 2016, 2017. And uh, there was this um, panel on the color of membership, and it was about how scholars of color are marginalized in the field. And I began to reflect on my own career, particularly in England, mm. where gatekeeping is massive in the academic field of Shakespeare. And I thought, wow, this is my experience, too. Um, and also what is marginalized is scholars of color who want to talk about race. They get right. accused of projecting their identities onto texts and or projecting modern ideas onto the plays. And I really just became passionate about it. And of course, Ayanna Thompson was my best friend and we've been friends for ages. Right. Um, and I knew her work and I loved her work. And, you know, she and I talked about it. And so I, I called her up and I said, I want to host a festival at the Globe. Um, because the globe is this iconic thing and I and it has a major platform. And I thought, how can I make this topic, this idea more public, um, yeah. as well as, you know, push it into the academic mainstream. 
And so Ayana was like, that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> let's do it. So I, 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 I curated a Shakespeare and race festival at the Globe in 20, it, it ended up being in 2018. And Ayana came and she was a keynote speaker. And uh, we had uh, an extraordinary time, but also there was so much I learned about how far behind England was in these mm. conversations. Um, actors and directors had been, you know, we we had them on stage talking about how difficult it was to be an actor of color in the industry. And, you know, it was everything from acting to teaching uh, was, was on the table. And uh, so I just kind of made it my life's mission to kind of get that story um, into the mainstream because it's not a subfield, it's the field itself. Right, um, right. And it had implications for the fact that there are no... Shakespeare scholars of color at the time who were full professors. And then I became a full professor in 2020. And I'm the only Shakespeare scholar of color in England who is a professor. There I know are you say others. it in the book and I was literally like, what? I actually got it wrong in the book. In the book, I said there's three of us, but actually three. two of us are early modern literature scholars. I'm the only one with Shakespeare studies in my title. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, okay. At, I have so many questions. I'm like, I'm so stressed out because I have so many questions for you. We don't have a million hours, which I wish we did. But I want to ask you about the reception to your work because mm. I, without ever opening the book, I was like, ooh, I bet she <laughs> gets it. I was like, ooh, I bet people do not want this woman <laughs> of color ta telling them about their favorite white boy, <laughs> genius literature author, yeah. writer. But I also have been in, like I used to, I studied Shakespeare. I did Shakespeare shows. Like I was very into Shakespeare. So I know what's in the text and I know what it's like to want to be in the show and to be like, well, you can play Pericles' nanny. <laughs> like <laughs> you can play yeah. the nurse. Yes. Um, so I want to know sort of what your, when you set out to do the thing, did you know people were going to be upset with you? Were you shocked by any pushback? Did you find any of the pushback to be particularly valid or helpful for you moving forward? Like, were there things that people were saying about, and, and I guess I should say this, part of the reason that a lot of people push back is because Shakespeare is quote unquote pre-race. Race mm -hmm. didn't exist. And so you talk a lot about race making and how his work mm -hmm. sort of helped to create what we understand as race now. But yeah. I, I know that some of the pushback I've heard you talk about was about like, leave race out of this. It didn't exist at the time. So were there things that you were hearing that were helpful or constructive or was it all just nonsense? Yeah. I mean, that's such a good question. So um, before the book came out, I started doing a lot of public facing work at the Globe on race. So I did um, a couple of Shakespeare and race festivals. And then in 2021, I um, launched a series of anti-racist Shakespeare webinars. And uh -oh. um, <laughs> yeah. I don't feel great about this for you. <laughs> and you know, the the Shakespeare Race Festival in 2018 didn't get any pushback. It just got genuine curiosity and bewilderment. Like, what does Shakespeare have to do with race? You know, members of the public just couldn't understand why we were putting these two things into conversation. 
So that was fine. I'm I'm always happy to address genuine curiosity sure. and like I don't understand this. But after 2020, after George Floyd's murder and Black Lives Matter, and then there was a major demonstration. Uh, there were demonstrations across the UK um, as there were across the world, but in um, Bristol. Um, a statue of um, a slaver, uh, Edward Colston, was plucked up by this group of young people and pushed into the river. Mm. So that uh, basically made people in England terrified about their national icons and treasures. Um, And so uh, the work I started, that I had been doing, was then reframed in the sort of conservative imagination Mm -hmm. as kind of woke and assaulting Shakespeare and an attempt to cancel Shakespeare or change Shakespeare. And when I launched these webinars, uh, the response was so awful that I had to shut down my Twitter account for uh, about a month, basically, (laughs) um, because it was picked up by all of these um, conservative rags, which then were read by American conservative rags like Breitbart. And then I was written about by Breitbart and they said, oh, she's been anti-Trump. Look at her Twitter posts. <laughs> they all know, you know? each other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and it was it was really awful. Um, so that and that's something that I I my organization has been amazing at supporting me with. And they have not stopped doing this work. They haven't put a stop to this work. We've just kind of doubled down, essentially. But people still kind of come after us every time we cast a show really, um, you know, progressively or if we are, um, yeah, doing more Shakespeare and race work. So when the book came out, I expected a certain amount of response. And I was really interested in the UK because it's a different publisher in the UK and the, mm. and the, t- and the book cover is very different yeah, as well. Yeah. Uh, so there's a picture of Ira Aldridge on the cover. Um, and I don't know, I think people didn't like seeing a Shakespeare book with a black man on the cover. Mm -hmm. I I got really weirded out by that response. And Mm. while I think for the most part, it's been well received in England, America received it way better. Um, Mm. America was fine with a woman of color who's American Mm -hmm. telling them about Shakespeare. So I had that going against me in the UK. Interesting. I, you know, when you think about it, you know, the sort of adage about women of color have to work extra hard to prove themselves. Yeah. And I've been a Shakespeare scholar for almost 25 years. I've worked at Shakespeare's Globe as a head of research and then director of education. I'm also a professor of Shakespeare studies at King's College London, the only professor of Shakespeare studies of color. I've written, I've published seven books. Like I I did everything to prove mm-hmm. my credentials before mm-hmm. I did this public facing book. And I still get reviews in this country from mostly white men who uh, like, oh, it's okay, but she's got, she's wrong about Macbeth. She doesn't really know about Macbeth. She's taken it too far. <laughs> she's, she's overreading race in, right. in this play, you know? Right. So they still have something to teach me about of Shakespeare course. fundamentally. That's why we're so grateful to have white men to teach us things. <laughs> 
personally that's how I feel. Um, exactly. Well, it's interesting because I'm sure you read what was that book? Shakespeare in a Divided America. Do you oh yeah, Jim Shapiro. He, yeah, yeah. He talked about how Shakespeare's actually like much bigger in the states than he is in England. Like that he's taught mm. more and like revered more in a way in the United States. Like, mm. like that it's like he is the gold standard here. And in England, yeah. they're like we have other talented writers. Have you heard of them? Um, which I don't know, but I, I always that's always stuck with me after I read that. Um, I don't know if I dis- I, I think I disagree with that. Oh, you do? I, yeah, especially this year when it's been the 400th anniversary of the Folio mm. to see how the English media have just gone, gone nuts crazy with it, <laughs> with it you know yeah. um and how they always want to sort of platform Shakespeare as this sort of icon of of white genius and that's how he's still portrayed even though my book is out there and other books are out there that say actually let's look at it this way instead right um, right so I I would say here he's and, and the people in government talk about Shakespeare Interesting. the king is obsessed with Shakespeare Oh, right. There's a king now. Yeah. So, I'm so out of the royalty loop, though I did read Spare. <laughs> I love it. Uh, <laughs> um, I want to talk about this, and I think we will talk about this a lot more at the end of the month when we discuss Romeo and Juliet for book club. Ah! But I want to talk just briefly because you work at a theater and you're also a professor. So you approach Shakespeare both with the understanding of a performance theatrical lens and also a literature English lens. Yes. I guess the question is, why do people hate Shakespeare? Is it because mm. we teach it badly? Is it because they're not exposed? My theory is that people hate it because they're taught to read it as a text and not think about it as a performance. But I also am so biased because all of my greatest experiences with Shakespeare have come from the theater and mm. all of my closest readings of Shakespeare have come from the theater, though I did take classes in college, like academic classes on Shakespeare. And I, you know, we did it in school. But I'm just curious, like how you see that since you deal with both sides. Yeah. I mean, I fell in love with Shakespeare on the page, really, in, in, as a, as a um, undergraduate. Um, obviously, when I met Shakespeare in high school, it was through a film. So mm-hmm. that grabbed me as a young, you know, young person. But I found that, you know, as I was saying earlier, my professor spoke so inspiringly about these plays. I remember reading them and seeing things and thinking, oh, God, because you get so close to the language when you read it. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I do think it is. And actually, I've seen terrible productions of Shakespeare. That if it was the first thing that I'd ever <laughs> seen, I would never have engaged with Shakespeare again. Right. You know, right. so it does depend on the gateway and your experience with the gateway. And I think I don't want to say there's bad teachers out there because teachers are always working so hard um, and they are. Um, it's a thankless job. Yeah. But um, I I think there's ineffective techniques and ineffective methods for teaching Shakespeare. And I think there are great organizations like the Folger and the Globe and the RSC, who right. the Royal Shakespeare Company, who um, whose education departments are out there trying to work with teachers and help them find really interesting ways to present these plays. And yeah, it is. If students get on their feet a bit and they, they think about them as as plays on a stage or, or even in a film or television or on YouTube, um, then it gets more interesting and it is more exciting for them. But I think the language is a huge barrier. Um, and so, uh, finding really effective ways to, to penetrate that language is, is the key. And that's really hard to do. Yeah. I wonder, you know, before we kind of start talking about your taste in books generally, um, I would love to know sort of how 
how you feel. And obviously, this is probably like your life's work. So, you know, you don't have to give me your full <laughs> life dissertation. But how do you think we should be interacting with race and racism in these plays when we read them, if we are mm. teachers, when we teach them, if we are producers of productions or films or actors? Like, how how much should we be putting into the work of reading these plays, sort of these ideas of of race or or gender or like how important is that to understanding the plays, I guess, is the question. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's an interesting question. I do uh, workshops with teachers and um, uh, uh, on how to how to present this material in that way. And and actually it is it is really difficult. But I think the first step is to think about race, for example, not as a topic, but as the a context. It's the context mm. in which Shakespeare was writing these plays in a period in which race making was happening, in which um, racialization was a reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he was writing in an increasingly multiracial society and was... Uh, in contact with people from different parts of the world, because migration and black presence studies, for example, have shown that it was not just a white city, London. And so that is a reality of the context in which Shakespeare wrote. And since then, we've been reading Shakespeare in a context of race and race-making. So you think about, I, I spent a lot of time in the book talking about the 18th century and how they sort of, for me, ruined Shakespeare because mm. they raised him up on this platform and made him an unassailable god. And he became a sort of embodiment of white English genius and civilization or civility. Mm-hmm. And this was at the same time that the English were trading Africans um, and were monopolizing the field of the slave trade. And that has to be reckoned with, that Shakespeare is rising at the same time as England's wealth due to empire. And that happened in the 18th century. That Shakespeare, that bardic idea of a genius who nobody else is like him, um, whose statues are all white, he is still with us. Right. Um, and so I, I feel like what I like to do with teachers and with students is go, that Shakespeare has nothing to do with the actual Shakespeare. He was a jobbing playwright, writing, getting his hands dirty uh, in Southwark in a really scrappy industry, uh, mm-hmm. writing for a new theater industry, which didn't exist, you know, only 20 years before he arrived. So um, that sort of is a really interesting, accessible entry point to Shakespeare. And then talking about the the race racial language in the play is to say, you know, the other plays at the time, there's a there's way more, you know, sort mm. of racist language and characters and characterizations. But Shakespeare has it too. And so if you really want to get to know Shakespeare, then you've got to reckon with some of the the things in his plays that are going to make you uncomfortable. Like there is misogyny. People seem to be fine that The Taming of the Shrew is a really misogynistic (laughs) play. But they still keep putting it on and people still keep it. It's still out there. Merchant of Venice is full of anti-Semitic tropes. Is that Shakespeare's anti-Semitism? I don't think so. But But some people do. 
Right. So if you, you, you have to kind of look at it and face it. Some people say, well, why don't you just toss it away if it's so racist? Well, because it isn't all like that. Right. And actually, once you get past it and actually start to think about what Shakespeare is actually saying about multiple identities coming together in a commercialized city, then actually that's quite relevant for how we're dealing with life today. Right. Um, so I think it's seeing the continuities between the past and present is Shakespeare is a great workhorse for that. Yeah, I love that. I think like the idea of like, why don't you just throw it away is so silly to me because I'm like, well, we're still sexist today. So like, why would we throw this away? This is a great, this is a great mirror for how you've been behaving recently. You know, like, I I would understand throwing it away if we had cured anti-Semitism or cured racism or cured sexism, but like, we still sort of need it. Also, like that ending in Taming of the Shrew, or how about the ending in Measure for Measure? Yes. Really problematic. Really problematic. But that gives directors something really interesting to think about. And then they can read it however they want and change it. Um, And Shakespeare's actors change the plays. So why can't we? Yeah. Uh, Okay. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook, 
with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay, we are back. I did not prep you for this. This is our Ask the Stack segment. And unfortunately for you, I was not able to tailor this question to Shakespeare at all. So you're just going to have to do your best. <laughs> um, someone wrote in for a book recommendation and we're going to give them some. Um, you just have to give them one, but you could give them more if you have more. So here's okay. what they say. Sharda says, I was recently asked for a war-related nonfiction book. And that is very much not my jam. They want more firsthand accounts but are and are open to narrative nonfiction. They are Lebanese Canadian and very interested in the U.S. military and they, the role that they have played in the Middle East. Um, a couple of books they have read so far is American Sniper, but they did not like that book, and Lines of Kandahar, which they liked as a firsthand account. Um, so that's that. We can do whatever we want here with this. If something comes to mind, you can go first. If not, I do have some things written down. So up to you. Sure. I mean, I'm not really big on military history. Okay. <laughs> yes. So I'm over to you. Okay. Okay. Here are some of mine. So as far as firsthand accounts, and I struggle with firsthand accounts of war because I think they're not very well done often. Um, so I have one, but I also don't like American Sniper. For this reason. But one would be Jarhead by Anthony oh, Swarford, yes. which was turned into a movie starring Jake Gyllenhaal. And that's a pretty like famous, well-known, firsthand sort of war memoir. I also love this book called Black Hearts by Jim Frederick. It's not a firsthand account. But Jim Frederick, I believe, was embedded with this troop. So he's a he's a journalist, but he was there with them on the ground and then reported about uh, what happened to them, which there was like a they, I believe it was in Af Afghanistan. And one of the soldiers or a group, small group of them, they killed a civilian, a woman in a pretty brutal attack. So he kind of digs into that. And then many of you will know my absolute favorite war book is where where Men Win Glory by John Krakauer, which is about Pat Tillman, the NFL player who left the NFL to go enlist and then was killed uh, in Afghanistan by uh, friendly fire and the whole cover up and the whole story. But it digs in a lot to like the history of the place. So those would be my recommendations. Did anything come to mind for you? No, no, no. no. <laughs> no. I mean, <laughs> I have one book which uh, which it constellates around the Civil War that actually I wanted to talk to you about, but uh, otherwise, which one? I don't. Tell us about that one. Oh God! Like it's a book I just picked up in the spring when I went to a literary festival. I heard the author speak, and, and she is Sarah Churchwell, and she wrote this book called um, "The Wrath to Come." Ooh. which is about Gone with the Wind. And <gasps> My favorite. I love Gone with the Wind. <laughs> well, you won't love it after you read this book because it's about how the Civil War, race, Jim Crow, all of that constellates around it. And she reads this sort of line of contact from, from the Civil War all the way to um, the January 6th insurrection. Oh, man. And she does this with Gone with the Wind as the centerpiece. Oh, and my gosh. Actually, How has no one told me about this book? It's amazing. It's amazing. It was one of those books where I was just, like, highlighting hundreds and hundreds of pair passages. Um, and I thought, oh, my God, I, 
I, I, I loved that movie growing up and, oh my God, she's right. Yes. Oh my God. That was horrendously racist. Yes. Yeah. When they go off and, and fight with these people, they were the Ku Klux Klan. We were rooting for the Ku Klux, Ku Klux Klan. Klan. Yeah. 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 It's incredible. It's extraordinary. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I have to read The Wrath to Come. Yes. Okay. Oh my God. I can't wait. Thank you for that. I'm so glad <laughs> you told me. Everyone else, if you want your book recommendation read on air, email askthestacks at thestackspodcast.com. We will do this for you. Um, and now it is time to talk about your favorite book. So we always start here, two books you love, one book you hate. So uh, uh, one of the books I love is the one that I just mentioned. Um, And another book that I absolutely fell in love with is The Secret Diaries of Charles Ignatius Santro, which is fiction. And it's by um, a Black actor named Patterson Joseph, who's British. And he's he's written books before, but he's never written a novel. It's his debut novel. And it's basically, he started this research project about this 18th century um, Black man who lived in England and had all these adventures and ended up being really sort of crucial to the abolition movement. And so he writes a a novel about this man and it's beautiful. And I I cried at the end and oh, it's just an amazing, amazing novel. Okay. What's the book that you hate? So I hate Moby Dick. I'm really sorry. Really sorry. I love this. Don't be sorry. We love to hate I, books around in, here. It, in college, I took an American lit course and loved most of it. Like most of it. Like I love American literature. And we read Moby Dick and I just didn't get it. I just didn't get it. <laughs> I mean, we went through all of these wailing chapters and I wanted to die. I just hated it. And maybe that's because I was in my early 20s and I wasn't ready for it. So one day yeah. I might pick it up again and give it a try. But you I know, never read it. Yeah, and I don't think I will. No, I'm I'm, just... I'm an avid reader, and I couldn't get through that novel. Um, but I know it's a favorite. It's a classic. People love it. Yeah. Okay. I don't normally ask people this, but you are going to get these questions because you are Sha- Miss Shakespeare. Here we go. Favorite Shakespeare play, least favorite Shakespeare play, most overrated and most underrated. Ooh. Okay. Favorite Shakespeare play is Titus Andronicus. <sighs> I love Titus. It's I so it's got so much fire in its belly, and people think, "Oh, it's so violent, so grotesque," and it's it's not. It's more than all of that, you know. Yes, I love that play. Um, love. My least favorite Shakespeare play is probably one of the history plays. I mean, okay. um, I would say. I mean, I do like a lot of the history plays, but probably Henry the Sixth, Part One something like that. I was going to say Henry the Sixth part two. Yeah, not crazy about the Henry but VI. both the Richards are fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. fantastic. Okay, overrated, underrated. Overrated is Henry V. I like Henry V, oh. but, you know, it's, mm-hmm. I think there's some really great stuff going on there, but I also think it's been uh, misread for centuries as a kind of propaganda for England when actually mm. Shakespeare, I think Shakespeare's saying, um, let's interrogate our past a bit better than we are. Ooh, mm. okay. And underrated. Um, underrated. Well, uh, Titus is really underrated. It's, it, yeah. you know, some people think that it's Shakespeare in his early years, uh, you know, as a teenager getting going. Uh, and he wasn't a teenager when he wrote it, but 
and and I actually think it it needs more performances and um, it you know more film versions. I really love the film version that Anthony Hopkins was in. I just thought it was uh-huh. crazy and interesting. Um, yeah. And it's the first play that Shakespeare does where he's exploring black identity and um, interracial relationships. And there's a biracial baby on stage yeah. in the 1590s. <laughs> Yeah. But there's okay. no but there's no race in the 16th century. No, definitely not. <laughs> yeah. Aaron just happened to be just there. No big deal. Yeah. No, nothing to say about him. <laughs> okay, I'm going to tell you mine because we sort of align. So, I'm going to save Titus for my most underrated cuz I do agree. Okay. And my most overrated very unpopular opinion. Hamlet. Oh, God. I think Hamlet yeah. is so mediocre. <laughs> I, I am like so out on Hamlet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the worst one, I, one of my, I, I think my least favorite is Love's Labor's Lost. I found that to be incredibly yeah. boring, even though I used to do that speech, that Rosalind's, yeah. Rosalind speech at the yeah. end where she's like, I can't remember, but I used to do that one. And then my favorite, this is really hard. I, 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 os- I oscillate between Macbeth and mm. Othello. Oh. Yeah, I just the scene act four, scene one of Othello, where it's like Amelia and Desdemona getting mm-hmm. ready. The Willow scene. Every time I read it, I cry. I just think it's yes. like some of the most beautiful. I just it, the speeches, the the monologues, the the soliloquies throughout. Mm-hmm. I just uh, I love it. I I think it's just like doing something theatrically like mm. it's just really entertaining you know like it's yes. like a really good plot structure and then there's so much in it and I and I generally think that the plays that everybody loves are actually just really good yeah like, I think that's like people love Romeo and Juliet yeah. it's like actually it's a good really play. good and like some of the ones people don't like I'm like because it's actually not that good of a play <laughs> like there might be like it's just like but nobody's nobody everybody's afraid to say people don't want to yeah. say that Shakespeare may have not written a good play you know he wrote 37 yeah like, some of them are just like not that good <laughs> um but I do I do love Macbeth I think Macbeth is just it so, is terrific it's, it's like it's such great. a thriller and it's like, a you're fast like, paced thriller as well fast, yeah, yeah. That's what I like about Titus. Mm. I think yeah. they're both really fast paced and thrilling and exciting. Mm. Um, but I do, I'll tell you a funny story about Othello. So the other day I was at my kid, I have twin four year olds and I was at their little soccer practice and I heard this dad calling for his son and I couldn't quite hear what he was saying. And then all of a sudden I realized his, he had, he was like, Iago, <gasps> Iago. No. And they had named their child Iago. And I, oh my God, did they know I who Iago fainted. is? I know, because I always loved the name Cassio, and yeah. I wanted, I thought about naming our kid Cassio, but I was like, I don't really want to name my kid after this character that sort of like <laughs> gets played. But imagine naming your kid after like the most pure evil villain on the stage. <laughs> like, just like, oh, you are naming your child into being an evil person. That's amazing. Oh, my God. Yeah. No, I, yeah. th- I would I would steer clear of that name. But yeah, Same. I agree with you about Othello. I think it's an incredible story, but it's also incredibly heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. Yeah. And when I see it done really well, I just, I find it really profoundly moving and sad. It's just the sad, yeah. sad, sad play. It's so sad. Yeah. When you talked about in the book, a production where Iago is portrayed by a light-skinned mm. Black person, mm. and just even hearing about that, really like I was like wow that sounds incredible yes because it makes like it it opens up possibilities for what is happening in the show in the play in a way that if he's white 
those possibilities aren't there, even though they are there, but yeah. they aren't there because of like what you're seeing. But it also, I think it made me realize that was one of the things that made me realize that maybe just maybe Iago is not really a racist. You know, everyone was like, right. oh, he's the racist in the play. But actually right, right, this, right. what's racist in the play is the play, is the structures right. of the society, is the world he lives in. And Iago right. is just you know, picking at that scab using racist language to make him feel vulnerable and to break him down and also to skew the audience against him. Right. So I feel like Amelia should be black. I, yeah, she's often cast as black. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I, especially that scene where she's like tending to her and like, I think it's our husband's fault. Mm. fault Like that. And the willows. I just love that scene. I don't know. But I, I, I've thought about that role as black for so for so long because I think it makes it's like such a nice visual like parallel to the scene that follows yeah. like when he enters the chamber. Yeah. Anyways, oh, I love that play. Okay. <laughs> I think I'm done asking you Shakespeare questions for today, but who knows? I might have more. Um, okay, what is the last like really great book you read? Okay, what was the last? So the last book I read was In the Wake by Christina Sharp. Uh, have Ugh, you read that? Okay. No, yeah. I just finished Ordinary Notes, though. Okay. Did you read her newest book? No, one, I haven't read fantastic. that. fantastic. She's just off the charts. Yeah. And just, I had to read it really slowly um, because it's hard. You know, it's about, it's racial theory, but it also brings in kind of like water eco studies. And it kind of uses the idea of the wake of a ship as a parallel to think about, mm. you know, refugees and, um racism and racist structures and enslavement and it's just incredible incredible Mm, I I have to read it I I loved I loved ordinary notes um what are you reading right now so I'm reading a book uh called why I jump uh which is a book about autism and it's from the perspective of um a Japanese autistic man um young man um and it's really really insightful my daughter is autistic And so, um, I've, since she was diagnosed, uh, almost two years ago, I've a a very late diagnosis because she's almost 20. Um, I've been reading as much as possible about autism and it's so interesting. And what this book is, it's just, you, you just kind of enter into the mind and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place. Mm. The autistic brain is a really beautiful, beautiful space. I love that. Mm. Are there any books that you're looking forward to reading, whether they're new or things that have just you've just been waiting to get to? Yeah. So um, I went to this really cute bookshop in a little village called Farnham, um, where my daughter is going to university. And um, I found this book called The Davenports. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Like wh- yellow, like a yellow yeah, dress on the cover. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and it's young adult fiction which I don't read very much of, but I know a lot of great fiction is in that category. Um, And uh, I was just really attracted to the cover. So I'm really looking forward to reading it. It's about an affluent Black family in 1910s Chicago. So I thought, wow, that'll be be interesting. I I love that. It sounds like you read across a lot of genres and a lot of different types of things. Are there any genres that you like don't read or avoid or just aren't that into you? Probably military history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my my ex uh, husband, his father uh, was really into military history, and um, I, I loved him. He was amazing, but uh, I just couldn't understand why you just always want to read about Napoleon. 
Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Um, What's a book that you love to recommend to people? Um, Well, I love recommending Maggie O'Farrell's Hamnet. I don't know if you've read it. I haven't read it. I'm like beautiful. It's so sad. It's really beautiful. Um, And recently there was a play adaptation by an amazing playwright of color named Lolita Chakrabarty. So she adapted it for the Royal Shakespeare Company. And um, she made the main character, which is Shakespeare's wife, Anne Hathaway. Um, She made her a woman of color. And um, it's such a beautiful story. It's incredible. It's about the d- the death of Shakespeare's son, Hamnet. Right. Is it is it tied like to the plays at all, or is it just sort of like a imagining of what that would have? Been? Yeah. It's 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 sort of tied more. It's tied very much to the time period. So she did her research on Elizabethan England and the theaters of the time. I had the suspicion that she read one of my books because there was all this. <laughs> it's a fantasy I have. <laughs> um, she definitely did. for sure. <laughs> and um, and of course, the play that comes up in, in you know, is Hamlet. Um, right. So uh, it, it which is all about fathers and sons. So right. well, um, that's also why I'm like, maybe I don't want to read it because I don't like Hamlet. Yeah. So I like well, Hamnet. You'd like Hamnet, I think. Okay. Yeah, because it's very much the female perspective. Okay, mm-hmm. good. Yeah. Hamlet, no thanks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's a book? What's the last really good book that someone recommended to you? Well, I think that would probably be in the wake because that was recommended to me this summer by Ayana Thompson. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, we take her recommendations very seriously. Um, How do you organize your books? (laughs) I was just looking at your bookshelf, actually. I was like, oh, she's quite color-coded. I I like that. I get a lot of shit for doing it by color, but it works for me. (laughs) Um, I tend to organize my books by genre and time period or geography. So I've got like a couple of shelves of all American authors, American lit. And then I've got like English novels. um, And then I've got like... um, criticism about race and enslavement or Shakespeare criticism about the body, you know, like it's just, right. yeah, I spent right, a lot of time right. thinking about my bookshelves. Um, I guess I should ask you this. If you were going to tell someone to read a Shakespeare play mm. and they are out on Shakespeare, they're coming to it from like, I read Romeo and Juliet and I hate it. Mm. What would you recommend to them? If they were just going to read it. Yeah. Just going to read it. Okay, I would probably tell them to either read Macbeth, because I think Macbeth is probably the most readable of the yeah. plays, or uh, As You Like It. Mm. Yeah, that does, okay. because some of the other plays have a lot of, you know, <laughs> I'm doing this talky-talky gesture with yeah. my hand, um, whereas I think As You Like It takes you from... Uh, the city into the country and you meet characters from all across the different social spectrum. Um, and I really like that sort of Shakespeare's really interested in the intermingling of different worlds. So mm. probably that okay. one. Okay. That's good. I don't know what I would tell someone. I think Macbeth is definitely the one I would say. I think it's, it's um, just really readable, isn't it? It's just really readable. Yeah. Like as I was going through reading all of them, you know, just I was just reading them. I wasn't doing like a ton of textual analysis. Mm. I was reading like the Pelican. I wasn't reading Arden. Yeah. You know, like I was just just reading. Yeah. Um, you know, scanning my little lines, doing my little uh, iambic pentameter, you know, <laughs> doing, my, doing my little thing. Um, but I but that one I was like, whoa, 
whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa, what's happening? Oh my yes. gosh, oh my gosh. Yes. so good. <laughs> Don't go in there. Um, <laughs> do you have, do you listen to audiobooks? I do, I do, yeah. Do you I have any them. favorite audiobooks? So I loved, uh, when I first moved into my house in 2020, um, I loved listening to The Color Purple um, mm. while I was painting my house. So I was painting- Purple? No, <laughs> if only. <laughs> my my daughter thinks I'm hyper fixated on prints, so it wouldn't be surprising oh, if I painted my house purple. But um, <laughs> no, uh, it was just normal, you know, sort of non exciting colors. Um, but I I was listening to that novel while I was working on my house, and it just kind mm. of was such a really lovely, lovely thing to do. Will you see the movie? Uh, I have seen the movie. Oh, is there a new movie coming out? There's a new one. There's like the <gasps> there's like the musical yeah. they turned into a movie. So it's the Broadway musical, but oh, the movie adaptation. I've seen the musical. I've seen yeah. the musical. I've seen the other movie, the the Spielberg, but I haven't seen this this new one. I think comes out in December. I'm oh wow, I'm excited it. to see that. I yeah, loved yeah. the Spielberg. I really did love yeah. that film. Oh, so good. Mm. Um, what's a book that made you laugh? Um, you know, it's a really good question, but I, <laughs> I, I guess I don't read a lot of comedy. So, okay. um, uh, the, the novel I was telling you about, uh, by Patterson Joseph, uh, mm-hmm. the secret diaries of Charles Ignatius Sancho, there were so many moments which delighted me where mm. I, I felt happy. I felt joy reading it. So that I guess is a kind of close enough answer yeah I don't remember okay, laughing but, out loud but okay what's the funniest Shakespeare play to you oh um gosh probably Twelfth Night might be the yes, one that makes gonna, me laugh out loud say. yeah especially yes. if you've seen a great production I saw yes. really the Globe did an amazing production in um 2012 with Mark Rylance as Lady Olivia and Stephen Fry as Malvolio oh yes and I remember that. that it went to Broadway as well yeah. and it just was I made me insane with laughter. Yeah. God, that if it's done well, yes. if you have a good Malvolio, yeah. it's just, I mean, that can save the whole production. Exactly. Um, what's the last book that made you angry? Ooh, gosh. Um, what made me angry? Yeah, no, maybe Sarah Churchwell's book. No, no, no. It was um, The Queen's Slave Trader um, mm. by Nick Hazelwood, uh, which is a book I picked up because I was doing like all of this reading on Elizabethan England. And um, this is about John Hawkins, who was an Elizabethan nobleman who was a slave trader. So the slave trade actually started in Elizabethan England, um, in England. So they had a few, they, they had a few attempts and he was one of them who mm. really tried to push for this. Um, and so this book is all about that. And what made me angry about it was that nobody ever learns this in school. They think mm-hmm. that the 18th century is when it all began, but actually mm-hmm. it was during Queen Elizabeth's time when Shakespeare was alive. Uh, mm-hmm. And that is a huge thing for me. So it made me angry that this I have to read this in a book that I happen to pick up in a bookshelf rather than just know it because it's taught in school. Mm. Speaking of teaching in school, if you are going to teach a Shakespeare play in school to high school students, yeah, what's the one you would teach? Um, so I've I used to be a high school teacher, and I taught yeah. Hamlet. Okay, at boo. boo. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I know it sounds extreme, but I I would either teach Othello or I would teach um, Titus Andronicus. I never got a chance to present that play to teenagers, and I would love to have done that because I think it's a play that would have made would have been really interesting for them. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. I think if I was going to teach one, I think it'd be really hard to do, but I think I would want to teach Measure or Merchant. Oh, that's interesting. I think they're just Why both merchant? so juicy. Mm. They're just so juicy. I also think that Merchant has really good female characters. And mm. I think so much in Shakespeare that's taught in school are like the male heavy plays. And yes. I always felt kind of left out of like, oh, now I have to read like Benvolio. Right. Like I'm like, no, like there's only Juliet and the nurse really, yeah, you know, but I feel true. like Portia has so much text yeah. that there's a lot like that you could, you know, cause it's like, oh, stand up and read aloud. And mm. it's like, there's enough text from her that the, like that with girls, students yes. would also feel included in the action of the play. Yeah. As you like, it's another one actually yeah, where it's a lot of like female it. voice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think I also just think like unpacking some of that like anti-Semitism and like yes. some of the ideas of like justice. I think you could do really interesting things about like abolition and justice mm -hmm. with a play like that. Um, because I always liked when it's taught, when it's tied to whatever's going on in the world that I was living in. Yeah. You know, like when teachers would try to like extrapolate, you know, we're talking about punishment and mm. like, how do we talk about punishment now? Like, so I think there's like a lot in that play to bring to the moment. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. Last one for you. I stole this from the New York Times, but if you could require the current president of the United States, or I guess, excuse me, if you could require the current prime minister of oh the United God. Kingdom to read one book, what would it be? Oh, don't like him. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if it was the president, I, okay. I maybe the same thing, but I actually think, uh, and I know this might sound arrogant, but I want them to read my book. I, I don't disagree with that at all. Yeah. And I think it's because, and I, this is why I wrote it, because I, and why I wrote it for a general readership, uh, is because I, I want us to stop talking about Shakespeare as if he's this unassailable genius, because it's mm. locking out so many people, mm -hmm. um, including me, it, you know, because mm -hmm. it, 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 I think there's a, a lot of gatekeeping that happens around Shakespeare. Um, and I think that governments like the UK government, they're really invested in Shakespeare. You know, um, there's a all party parliamentary group set up by, uh, one of the cabinet ministers on Shakespeare. Wow. The King is talking about Shakespeare. He celebrated the 400th anniversary at Windsor Castle of the folio. So, um, I, I would love them to get a, their hands on a book that says, hang on a second, let's break this down a little bit mm. and interrogate the way we've been reading Shakespeare. I love that. Mm. All right, everybody. Farrah will be back on Wednesday, December 27th to discuss Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare. You guessed it. Um, if you haven't read the book or the play or whatever, you should read it. If you've read it before, I encourage you to read it again. But also if you haven't read it or if you have read it and you don't want to read it again, that's fine too. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about it. We're going to spoil it. I have a feeling you probably know what happened in the end, <laughs> but I won't tell you now. And you can get Farrah's book, The Great White Bard, wherever you get your books. I read parts of it and I listened to parts of it and you read the audiobook fantastically. Thank so you. if you're an 
audiobook person, I do recommend the audiobook. Um, Farah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun talking to you. Yay. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Farrah Cream Cooper for joining the show. And I'd like to say thank you to Julia Rickard for helping to make this conversation possible. Remember to listen to our book club episode when Farrah returns on December 27th about Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Also, make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, Threads, and TikTok, and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And you can check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 